Welcome to Labour Days, a podcast about trade union issues and Labour history. I'm Daniel Randall, and with me is Ed Mustill and our producer Liam. We should warn you at the outset of the episode today that it is uh, it's just us. Our co-host Ellie is unwell and unable to be here, so we send her all our best wishes for a speedy recovery. And undoubtedly, pray for Clarky. Pray well, quite, and undoubtedly the best wishes of. Uh, all Labour Day's listeners as well, because we're, we're quite aware that her presence is often the only thing that makes the podcast listenable. So. Yeah, it's uh, between us two this time, so it's bound to go into a series of insufferably self-referential uh, uh, comments, so just bear that in mind. Something to look forward to then. Uh, the title of today's episode is Rank and Filism 101. We'll be discussing some definitions shortly, but just to sort of set this up by way of introduction, um, to talk about the terms. The term rank and file... Uh, comes from military organisation and is used to describe what might be called ordinary soldiers in an army as opposed to its officers. Um, Applied to trade unions, which if you're a fan of a martial analogy, might be thought of as armies in the war between classes, rank and file refers broadly to the grassroots membership of a union, and that's often counterposed to what's been called the bureaucracy of a union and of the union movement more widely, the nature and composition of which we'll be discussing today. Rank and file-ism, therefore, might most simply be described as an approach to trade union strategy and organisation that aims to empower the rank and file of the labour movement independently from and sometimes in direct opposition to the bureaucracy. Um, the episode today is intended to be quite a basic and introductory uh, one, hence hence 101 in the title. We won't be delving overly deeply into historical examples and we'll be mainly attempting to sketch out uh, some of the basic concepts and set up some discussions. It's a topic that we intend to return to in future episodes and, and in a way is a topic that's kind of threaded through everything we talk about on the podcast really. So format-wise we're going to be hearing from Ed first who's going to walk us through some of the history. Um, then we'll pose what we think might be some of the key questions and discussions arising from that. And then finally the episode uh, this month is going to conclude with an interview with Rianne Keyes who's a university worker and University and College Union uh, UCU rep and branch officer who was involved in a recent rank-and-file upsurge in that union around a national strike. We'll introduce the interview and the context and background to it in a little more detail when we get to it, but for now, it's over to Ed. Cheers, Daniel. Yeah, no, it's... um, I suppose we thought we'd do this one because sometime... I think we... We talk about sort of union bureaucracy a lot in a lot of our episodes. We sure do. And we sometimes like just slip into maybe assuming that everyone knows what we're on about or what we mean when we use certain terms or have a particular analysis of coming from a particular position and analysis of a, of a dispute I mean, or that, a particular that, union. That confidence is particularly misplaced given that we rarely know what we're on about. No, at, it, at, the, at the best of times. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, we're going to talk about the terms in more detail and talk about the sort of history of where, where this debate comes from. So it'll be a little bit, probably, I guess, more like more theoretical than what we usually do, you know, rather than looking at this or that dispute. It's just going to be a bit more of a... Of a yeah, although, although hopefully we, we, we'll have an opportunity to tie some of that theory into 
you know, concrete and practical experience. Well, you'd, you'd hope so. We would yeah. hope so. Otherwise, uh, what's the point of talking about it? <laughs> Quite so. <laughs> it's going to be pretty Anglo-centric, uh, partly for just for reasons of time, uh, partly because I'm quite ignorant about how this debate has played out in other other parts of the world in the in the movement so it will be quite sort of mm. we'll be talking about britain and america i imagine more, more than the little englandism of the moment yeah yeah affecting even even, you. even even labor days has succumbed <laughs> to uh to, to petty nationalism um so unions that we are familiar with these days mostly are like big organizations even what you'd call like a small union will probably have a few tens of thousands of members and it'll have quite an apparatus of, of sort of full-time staff, people working for the union, and it'll have quite an apparatus of, you know, offices, buildings, property, etc. all the rest of it. So this can include uh, elected full-time officials like most general secretaries, although I believe not all general secretaries even today are actually necessarily elected. Um, there's also unelected officials in most trade unions, which could be regional secretaries, that sort of thing, um, and sort of people doing full-time organiser roles, that sort of, that sort of, you know, we all know, I'm sure a lot of people listening to the podcast do that sort of work in, as, as their job. Um, and a large number of people that, uh, about 100 years ago, the Webbs, uh, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, in their sort of survey of British trade unionism called... The civil service of the union mm. world which is sort of people doing research they might do public relations these days they might do lobbying activities a whole sort of social uh, media yeah a whole sort of staff of, of trade unionism um so when we're talking about the bureaucracy that's largely what we're referring to but it's worth kind of stepping back and thinking what exactly is this mm. and where has it come from historically so there's always been full-timers in trade unions and some of the people in trade union history that I respect most have at various times in their life have fulfilled the role of full-time worker for a trade union you know going back to new unionism in the late 19th century Tom Mann was kind of a sort of professional trade unionist for many years of his life you know Eleanor Marx was paid a salary by the the gas workers union and, and all the rest of it you know but most of the 19th century that sort of apparatus was quite small because unions were unions as we know them were quite new they weren't particularly well established mm. they didn't have a great deal of money and resources um, it was to, so there tended to be a small central apparatus and local and regional union bodies had quite a lot of autonomy to sort of get on and do things however they liked and i think also it's it's probably worth pointing out that that the the, the relative um kind of slightness of the of the central ap apparatus partially it's a function as you say that you know the movement was quite young and it was just getting up on its feet and these things hadn't sort of consolidated themselves or ossified but it was it's also to some degree about a conscious strategic choice which was that certainly in the period of new unionism that the and and in the most radical conceptions of that period the union was seen as a kind of weapon of combat the, yeah. the purpose of which was to facilitate struggle. So you wanted to keep the... Well, I mean, it almost wasn't necessary to have that much of a kind of consolidated central apparatus if the basically the purpose of the union was there to, to facilitate struggle, to pay strike pay. Yeah. And, and, and that was about it. You know, when you, yeah. move, when you move off that conception, suddenly the, 
the kind of permanent central structures become 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 more significant. Yeah, yeah, and that that I mean, we'll get onto that that sort of debate around like, does the union as an institution become a sort of end in itself mm. for people and and all the rest of it? Um, what happened in the early twentieth century, from about nineteen hundred to about nineteen twenty, a lot of and particularly just before and during the First World War, a lot of union struggles were around... It's a, it's a funny one, in a way, because there was like very militant and, in some a lot of cases, very violent industrial disputes. But when you look at the actual demands of the disputes, they're very sort of like ordinary trade mm. union demands. It's like a bit of a pay rise and some better conditions at work, etc., but the big one that runs through all of them was union recon- formal union recognition. So you had, like, in the 1910s, like, really strong what you would call rank-and-file upsurge, what historically has been labelled a kind of syndicalist sort of moment in trade union history. But the demands of a lot of that were to formalise the structures mm. of trade unionism and to get formal recognition. Uh, collective bargaining in, in many industries was brought in in this sort of time in one way or another. After the First World War, there were great sort of strides made in getting sort of joint commissions between unions and employers and all that sort of machinery that, that developed. Um, and one effect, so one effect of the great rank-and-file upsurge of the early 20th century is the increased the size and the power of the sort of bureaucracy that we're, we're kind of talking about. Um, created it, arguably. But yeah, yeah, you could argue that that before that, it was a very different, it was a very different animal, you know. Um, but at the same time, workplace-based shop stewards evolved as well from being, in a lot of workplaces, people that just sort of collected union dues off their colleagues, to to fulfilling their own role on the shop floor of doing sort of microscopic negotiations on workplace-based stuff and then going into a sort of organising role, mm. particularly during the First World War, when many of the, most of the leaderships of the trade unions signed up to a sort of idea that there had to be industrial peace during the war, that strikes were basically made illegal, and that any strikes that, were, that did happen, if not, were if not met by total hostility from the leadership, but at least were, were being sort of led by the, by the shop stewards because the leaders couldn't be even if they sort of agreed with it couldn't be seen to to be to be endorsing it so the and that's an interesting one because it's not necessarily the case that though the that when the rank and file gets stronger the bureaucracy gets weaker mm. or what i would argue they were both getting stronger in the early 20th century at, at, at the same time and developed a sort of very complex and contradictory relationship with each other can i, can I ask a question about i think something that will probably talk about quite a bit in this episode which is about the the actual sort of demographic or sociological composition of the emerging bureaucracy because I think one of the questions we're going to look at a bit today and that is um, very much sort of front and centre of, of this whole debate is you know what? What is actually the sort of social relationship between the rank and file of the labour movement and the bureaucracy? Who, you know, is the bureaucracy composed of former members of the rank and file who, for example, have become elected to a full-time position and undergone some sort of process of the transformation of consciousness, which is 
you know, change their perspective and interest? Or is it is the bureaucracy composed of people who were never part of the rank and file in the first place and have come into the labour movement in a sort of professional capacity? You know, I, I know that the answer to this is a bit of both, but could, could, could you say a bit in the, about in the period you're talking about how is this bureaucracy emerging? Is it people from the shop floor getting into full-time positions or is it middle-class reformers coming into the labour movement to do sort of professional work yeah, I and think, I think taking largely, leadership roles? I think largely they came from the shop floor. Like, you know, Tom Mann was a was an engineer, wasn't he? Will mm. Thorne was a, a labourer, you know. Um, ben Tillett did work on the docks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mary MacArthur was... A, who who was a, an organizer for the National Federation of Women Workers perhaps stands out a bit more in that she had a bit more of a sort of white collar, formally educated background. And would, would you say these people though were because would you say these people were um, part of the you know human infrastructure of of the incipient bureaucracy because their role, although they were sort of professional full-time trade unionists, to use your phrase, their role was very much about... They were agitators, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were professional I mean, agitators. I mean, I've, I've chosen off the top of my head, like, some of the more radical union leaders of the time, if you look at some of the more moderate ones. But if you, if you do look at some of the more moderate ones, as far as I know, <clears throat> also came out of, out of the shop floor. Mm. So, like... Uh, uh, the leader of the Sailors and Firemen's Union, Havelock Wilson, yeah. he was pretty moderate, and he he worked on the on the ships. Mm. You know, um, the engineers' union leaders, the, the sort of moderate ones that were displaced after the First World War, that had all been skilled engineers themselves, and stuff. So, I think generally speaking, yeah, they were pe they were workers who had, yeah. who had who had, and there's a sort of parallel with uh, the early Parliamentary Labour Party as well yeah. in that. The vast majority of them was had been sort of like manual workers at some point, and when they went into Parliament, they became these sort of like very statesman-like sort mm. of figures and and very moderate and all the rest of it. You so, know? so do you, just one one final sort of supplementary question before I let you move on. But do do you think? Because it seems to me that that's quite important in terms of drawing some political and organisational and strategic conclusions about this because. There is a, um, a kind of school of thought within this debate uh, that perhaps comrades from a sort of anarchist background might argue that the, the that the trade union bureaucracy is almost a sort of alien, it's a kind of alien class force mm. effectively. That it's a that it's 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 it, that the, 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 they're kind of representatives of the capitalist class yeah. interloping in the yeah. in the labour movement, and I think the history you're describing sort of suggest that that's not quite true it's about it's about that you know that it, this is a it's a kind of organic element yeah it's de it develops from the way the labor movement has has tended to organize yeah. i think and it obviously is then shaped by a lot of external factors sure. which we'll, we'll talk about later yeah and and, and also there are there is there is some there, there is some degree of People who are, who actually are from out, you know, sociologically and politically from outside the working class coming into the labour movement in professional capacities yeah. and, and so on and so on. But yeah. um, I think it is important to note that when we're talking about the trade union bureaucracy, both historically and in contemporary terms, this isn't 
you know, it's not a sort of alien class force that's yeah. come from outside to deliberately mislead us. This is an all. Is this is a a a a product or a development from within our class yeah. that's that's based on the way our organisation yeah. is set up. And that's why we're allowed to have a go at them because exactly. they, <laughs> because they come from us. <laughs> um, so. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm like really whizzing through a lot of history here in a very like slapdash way. But um, are you? Because I, I was actually going to hurry up. <laughs> well, if you hadn't kept interrupting, we'd be. Uh, I'm we'd sorry. Be, I'd have got to uh, 19, uh, 1979. <laughs> but so, so then, so sort of interwar period. There are there are more sort of formal attempts to sort of organise what what was starting to be called the rank and file in sort of shop stewards movements and in something called the national minority movement, which mm-hmm. I think you, you might want to talk about a bit, a well, bit later. I might, I might mention it um, again. Alongside the sort of increasing formalisation and strength of the bureaucracy and at different times over the sort of mid 20th century, uh, the, the stewards, shop stewards in different industries have been, had greater or lesser sort of levels of organisation and the shop stewards organisations tend to be quite uh, it's difficult to, to, to have staying power because of the nature of them um, they might arise in response to a certain set of conditions in a certain industry that aren't mm. going to last forever and of course they rely they sort of rely on being self-funded and to keep their independence and stuff like that whereas the, the bureaucracy the machinery of, of trade unionism by this point was very well established and was sort of paying for itself through the dues of mm. millions of, of paying members. So very well established by by the sort of time of the Second World War and and, and more so afterwards. Um, the high points of sort of rank and file stewards organisation arguably were during the First World War and then again in the 60s, early 70s, mm. where there was a bit more for, sort of formal widespread organisation. By 1979, a third of a million people in Britain were trade union reps, which is, like, amazing when you, mm. when you think about it. And we all sort of know this statistic of, like, from its high point in 1979, the tra- trade union movement in Britain, oh, now it only has about half the membership that it had then. But I think ju- a just as important statistic is the number of stewards oh, in that time. More important statistic, arguably. arguably. Declined more. Yeah. So at least at least by two thirds, if not more. And that meant that as unions were getting smaller throughout the sort of Thatcherite period, the bureaucracy was actually becoming relatively stronger. And in fact, numerically bigger as well, because the number of full-time officers employed by unions increased even throughout the 80s and 90s when membership numbers were sort of shrinking year on year. there's also an argument in the sort of literature around this that workplace reps themselves over the over the course of this time became sort of semi-bureaucratised um, in the sort of mid to late 20th century through means but like again it's a kind of it's kind of a result of, of trade union successes in some mm. ways because you might have a fight for like getting loads of facility time for your reps which is good and then you might have a convener who goes on to full-time facility time and just kind of does that for like 20 years and never goes back to their shop floor job and becomes very sort of 
you know, union loyal and very, yeah, yeah. and there's, you know, we all know reps who are like, oh God, the bloody members, you know, <laughs> they're always banging on the door, on my door, wanting something sort of thing. And that's sort of, that's sort of a product of trade union success in a way, mm. but it, it, it bred a sort of complacency and arguably a kind of, so the, the literature is interesting when it talks about this period, because it's saying, you know, actually this sort of clear cut rank and file versus bureaucracy dichotomy is a is a bit simplistic actually because there are there are other layers within the union that behave in in different ways as well. I, I should say, in the interests of cat uh, candor and full disclosure, that I myself I'm I'm in the second year of a three year term as as an elected full time rep, and I am very aware of how even if on an intellectual level you've completely got a, that 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 critique of of um, a bureaucratic approach to trade unionism and you think you've got it all figured out in your head just the 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 day-to-day effect of you know going to negotiation meetings with senior management you're away from the shop floor i don't have to wear a uniform anymore not working shifts you spend a lot of time in fancy offices with with senior managers across the table and there is a real um risk and, and and there has been historically in all sorts of industries a tendency for reps in those positions to start to see even only on a subconscious level, they start to see that as their kind of terrain. They th- they think of that as their world and yeah, it, it's, the it, negotiation. Well, it's, and, the, it's the world that you exist in, isn't it? On a, yeah. Yeah. On so a, you know, and, and and I think if if there isn't a a, a sort of strongly in, uh, uh, organized independent rank and file movement, kind of dr- sort of dragging on your ankles a little bit, um, there there is a risk that you sort of disappear into that world and become become shaped and transformed mm, by it mm. yeah my, my dad was uh, back in the 70s was a uh, a research officer for a, a union that will remain nameless uh, it was the GNM. and uh, <laughs> he he was sort of drafted in to be a body in the room in a negotiating meeting it wasn't normally part of his role and the the, the head the senior official that was doing the negotiations was um was was like being very chummy and pally with the the manager being like you know how are your kids? Did did you get them into that school that you wanted to get them? You know, like like these guys just like were so, meeting so each, each other all the time. You know, probably having, yeah. probably having lunches, you know, negotiating stuff over dinners and stuff like that. And and then you know the official, of course, the official comes out of the meeting. You know, talks later on talks to a meeting of reps in the industry and gets up and says, "Let me tell you, brothers, I went in there and I laid down the line, <laughs> and there is no doubt that management have heard loud and clear." You know, and, and I'm sure we've all we've all experienced or heard of similar things happening. You know, you know, if you if you situate all of these dynamics in um, the question of well, look, you know, how how is the union organised? What kind of footing is it on? the same sort of tendencies towards bureaucratization and the development of this sort of layer within the union that you can see at a national level, if the union's organisation in the workplace is based on the same kind of organisational and strategic approaches, you're going to get the same dynamics almost in microcosm mm. um, in, in, the, in the workplace. And you're right, it's, it's sort of complex and contradictory in a lot of ways because you know things like recognition agreements and collective bargaining all of those formal structures are hugely important and to you know winning them is a great gain yeah but that then almost builds in and a a kind of innate tendency towards bureaucratization because to sustain that to support it you do need 
well, arguably, full-time negotiating reps and a, and a staff of researchers yeah. who can do the research to help supplement your pay claim and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the other, the other element to a sort of uh, a workplace bureaucratisation is a sort of late 20th century phenomenon of, like, because more legislation was brought in yeah. that affected workplaces, that gets reflected it by um, trade union roles that, that come into existence in order to sort of police that legislation. Yeah. So sort of health, health, health and safety, safety reps, sort of union learning reps, stuff like that, as unions kind of naturally respond to the sort of legal framework that they're operating in as it, as it impacts on the workplace. So, so I suppose... We could, I mean, we can talk about it. We could bring bring everything up to the present day when we when we talk about it after. But um, just to go back to the sort of early twentieth century and talk a bit about the theory mm. of, of all this stuff from from the left, um, the organised left, you know, socialists of various stripes, whether in the Labour Party, whether in socialist groups, whatever, they've had very different approaches to union organisation at different times. So so your classical Marxism was very hostile to the bureaucracy, but by and large, it didn't define bureaucracy particularly in a particularly coherent way. When, so, when you say classical Marxism, you're, you're talking about um, first sort of first and second generation Marxism. Yeah, well, so starting with Marx and Engels, for example, for them, bureaucracy in the trade unions was a direct function of what they called the labour aristocracy which was the layer of kind of skilled workers mm. who had a, a much better material uh, existence from the majority of the working class and whose organisations therefore were kind of wealthier richer more respectable had arguably had more sort of social influence and their, and the functionaries of those organisations were therefore sort of had a sort of mo a very moderating and, and bureaucratic sort of role um, so but Marx and Engels themselves didn't write a great deal about trade union organisation really and not not unreasonably because the time that they were doing most of their writing unions were sort of in their infancy and were mm. kind of a diff different beasts to what they look like in the in the 20th century um for some in that tradition then the sort of second generation thinkers that that you, that you mentioned um for some the union bureaucracies were sort of out and out bad guys and they, like the american socialist daniel de leon who is actually a great and very important socialist theorist and particularly when it comes to uh trade union stuff i mean we mentioned Indeed. him a lot when we talked about industrial unionism yeah, yeah. he he sort of he sort of Google dubbed, him. Read, his, <laughs> read his stuff he sort of dubbed the, the bureaucracy as the labor lieutenants of capital so almost that almost that language you were talking about where are they acting on behalf of the of the capitalist class although his ideas were actually much more complex than that yeah indeed i mean he he wasn't arguing that they were that it was a sort of that they were like an invasive element in the sense of not having any organic roots of their own in the labour movement, and you know, and, and actually, even in that formulation, the labour lieutenants of capital, he's exp you know that he's expressing the idea that they're an element from within the labour yeah. movement, from within yeah. the working class, whose 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 function is to um, you know hold back struggle and police yeah. the movement and 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 so on and so on. But 
there is a la- there is an element of that language of the time sure. that it revolves around sort of treachery and being a turncoat and stuff like that, which I'll, I'll sort of come back to in a minute. But um, then others sort of sort of added to the theories of bureaucracy, like uh, Rosa Luxemburg sort of argued that they were a kind of distinct social layer of professionals who owed their career to the union and therefore, as we mentioned earlier, for them the union became like an end in itself rather than a rather than a means by which workers could achieve yeah. material gains. I, I think I think this I, I mean I'm conscious that if I interject after every sentence then your presentation is <laughs> going to be endless. But I, th- I think that point about seeing the union as an end in itself to me, that that is that is absolutely integral to an understanding of what the bureaucracy is and how it functions. Um, you know, uh, even more so than these ideas about um, oh, you know, they're they're the lieutenants of capital and they're there to hold us back and they're there to put a break on struggle. I think what's really essential to the understanding is that for for the bureaucracy, the perpetuation of the union as a set of structures, you know, as a as, as a staff, as a set of offices, as a set of financial structures, th- that becomes that that becomes the the end, rather than um, m- m- advancing the class struggle and, yeah. and making gains in struggle. And if you have that perspective, you, you see, that, you know, the the purpose of the union is just to sort of reproduce itself. Yeah, that's that's going to um, almost naturally tend in a sort of conservative direction because yeah. you're going to be worried about not wanting to spend too much money on this or that and not wanting to act too recklessly not wanting to challenge the law etc etc yeah. and you know you know obviously for sure you can't be you know we 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 wouldn't want union leaderships that had a completely reckless attitude to all that stuff and um, yeah because if you lose your organization you're yeah of course you have to start you're in a you're in a bad way um but 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 if it becomes once you stop once you stop having that conception of the union as an instrument of class combat and of struggle and start seeing it as a set of structures or, or, or buildings or whatever that need that need to be defended and maintained i think you're you're you're, you're in mm. you're in territory that can become bureaucratizing yeah and similar to similar to luxembourg but slightly coming at it from a slightly different point of view I, antonio gramsci the italian marxist he sort of thought, uh, theorized that that the bureaucracy had this sort of was playing this sort of balancing act between labor and capital in a way and their power came from actually the existence of the wage system itself mm. because if you play a a, bar- a bargaining negotiating role within the wage system you're not going to advocate for the abolition of the wage system mm. because then you'll be made redundant essentially um so his his idea was that they would always be reluctant to push for more radical demands outside the bread and butter of trade unionism, not because they were like bad guys who were just conservative, but because of the the that sort of balancing act position that they find themselves in. Um, all these guys were writing and being activists at times when you could reasonably make the generalisation, you know, early 20th century Europe, that large groups of workers were quite militant and their own union hierarchies often got in the way of expressing that militancy. I think this is these all these thinkers all this this whole tradition is incredibly valuable but it's kind of been bastardized in the modern day by people that have taken a very simplistic that very simplistic point from it mm. 
you know, there are ma- there are mass ranks of militant workers if only they had the right leadership that wasn't sort of standing in their way. Uh, a lot of contemporary Trotskyist left sort of has that, if you read their literature, mm. like, oh, another sellout from the leadership, another uh, this, that, whatever. Um, yeah, although, although having, I think that is true, and there is a there is a, a sort of knee jerk tendency on the far left to talk in those terms as if um, the only thing standing between the working class and uh, you know the storming of parliament is this craven sellout yeah. union leadership that's yeah. holding it. That's, that's, that's Unless holding it back. they happen to be members of your own political tendency. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, this this is the other thing that you know, as well as that, or sometimes in place of that. You, you get an attempt to um, make excuses for various leaderships and actually defend their record and, and kind of apologise for their record because a particular, you know, they might be aligned with a particular group or a particular mm. organisation feels that they can't criticise them too heavily or they won't work with them or whatever. So it's the kind of worst of all worlds. Yeah, yeah. There's also another problem, which is that if... Defining bureaucracy is hard, which I think we've established it, it probably is. Yeah, because I mean, you've been talking for ages, and I'm still no none, clearer. None the wiser. <laughs> none the wiser. Um, defining the term rank and file is also contested as well, because you can use it to mean all lay all lay trade union members. You can use it to mean just the more sort of engaged the, the layer that's engaged in trade union activity on some level which would probably be a minority uh, you, or is it just the most politically conscious elements of trade union membership or is it just the shop stewards various shop stewards have experienced that you know far from holding their members back in some situations they're actually more politically advanced mm. and and it's actually quite a difficult job to persuade people to take action in some I'm sure we've all experienced that in so, in some workplaces um, so going back to the First World War stewards in the munitions factories for example were able to rally their members to militant industrial action which as I say was actually illegal at the time uh, around uh, working conditions wages and so on but they never called any strikes against the war even though the vast majority of the stewards themselves were against the war because the members weren't sort of politically prepared to to do it. Um, Historically, a shortcut out of that sort of tricky situation has been what you might call uh, the phenomenon of broad left in trade unions, which is basically means forming an electoral coalition to capture the leadership of a union for the political left in that union. And they've usually been called something like the broad left, the united left, left unity, various combinations of those sort of words. Um, That was the tactic employed by uh, the Communist Party sort of post-Second World War and, generally speaking, followed by most of the organised left now in the British trade union movement. Um, And it sees the, the main divide in unions as essentially a sort of political divide between left and right rather than... I would argue, rather than sort of tackling these mm. issues of structure that we're trying to yeah. talk about. Um, and the best thing, therefore, is that you can do as a left-wing union activist is to replace your crap conservative union leaders with good, fighting, socialist, left-wing union leaders. Um, but that ignores something that I mentioned in passing earlier, which is the huge external pressures that are brought to bear on all trade union leaderships 
of any political hue, I would argue. And I would say the only real reliable counterweight to those external pressures is an organised and political confident rank and file. Um, if you're not building that, even when you capture leadership positions in a union, you're still going to be susceptible to those sort of pressures, which we can talk about in a second when I when I finally show up. Um, if you look at the sort of record of various very left-wing, very socialist trade union leaders in British Labour history, you can see that they haven't, to put it mildly, they haven't always been the ones pushing militant action. Um, Robert Williams was a was a very militant socialist leader of the transport workers, and he was one of the leaders responsible in 1921 for uh, basically breaking the Triple mm. Alliance and refusing to call action in support of the miners. You know, the left wing of the TUC General Council during the general strike in 1926 didn't really distinguish itself from, <laughs> you know, from from the rest yeah. of the union leadership in that in that episode. And forward, going forward into the 1970s, you know, Jack Jones and Hugh Scanlon, who were left-wing trade union leaders, were very instrumental in getting the trade union movement to sign up to sort of social, social contract under, yeah. under the Labour government and all the rest of it. So, and that's none of that is me sitting there saying these people were all traitors to the Labour movement and they should be ashamed of themselves. But it's something that when you recognise that those historical things happened... You have to come up with some sort of explanation for it that goes beyond, oh, they were just bad guys, mm. you know. So some questions for us to think about. Is it possible usefully to define the bureaucracy and the rank and file? Is it useful to think of it as a sort of dichotomy between two forces within the movement that are sort of in conflict with each other? Or is it a bit more complicated than that? To what extent do we think workplace trade union has been bureaucratised, which was is an idea that I was putting forward in what I was just saying, and I'm not sure, actually... That's an idea that comes from the literature, and I'm not sure the extent to which I do actually agree with it. Um, and is there a best strategy for sort of radicals, radical left-wingers in the trade union movement to follow in the circumstances that we're currently in, based on all this history of theory and the discussion of the bureaucracy and all the rest of it. Uh, is it useful? Is it a sort of histo interesting historical debate that has really no bearing on what we're facing at the moment? Or, you know, that's that's the sort of question, I suppose. This is labor, 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 labor. Thanks for that, Ed. Um, a pretty useful um, sort of introductory uh, historical sketch to some of the origins of these ideas and the ways in which activists in the labour movement from kind of different traditions and in different periods have approached them. One thing I thought it might be useful to do just in kicking off a, a bit of a discussion in response is, is to talk in um, very day-to-day -day practical terms about what the bureaucracy in the contemporary labour movement consists of. Because I think if you speak to a lot of, um, I don't like the term ordinary trade unionists, it sounds quite patronising, but the, the kind of person who's you know maybe is a bit engaged in the union yeah. comes to the branch occasionally if if it, i think if if they have a conception of what the bureaucracy is even if they don't necessarily th think of it using that term they they might they might think well it's maybe it's the general secretary or it's the kind of national officers of the union so i think in a lot of people's heads sometimes 
the the idea of the bureaucracy is sort of conflated with just the leadership. Yeah, or um, even just the union. I mean, a lot a lot of people, particularly big. I've worked in a lot of big public sector workplaces that are quite heavily unionised, relatively speaking, these days. And people talk about the union as if it's a thing that exists like two hundred miles away that yeah. comes in and does stuff for you. And that's I think that's part of the same sort of attitude. Yeah, indeed. And and, and again, it's, I think that that comes back to, to this point that we were making about um, tr- trade unionism as a sort of endeavour it, it, itself becoming kind of bureaucratised at almost every level so even though i think it is possible to talk in the terms that some of those late 19th and early 20th century socialist and kind of revolutionary industrial unionist theorists were talking about the bureaucracy as a kind of a sort of distinct element and layer with within the labor movement i think it is possible to talk about that but you can't be lazy with the term because um uh because that that you know there has been this process of sort of bureaucratization right the way through the movement so it's massively overly simplistic to talk about you know the bureaucracy is just the national officers who are trying to hold back struggle yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or or even the bureaucracy is the sort of unelected functionaries at at head office who are um whispering in the national officers yeah. ears i think you've you've got to, you've got to see things in in uh, a broader perspective and there's a there's a difference between you know even we we talked about going back to this kind of like has has workplace trade unionism been bureaucratized debate there's a difference there in that your rep on full-time facilities is still in the workplace and still kind of you know is directly affected by changes in material conditions in the mm-hmm. world. You know, if a load of redundancies come down the pipeline, even if you're on full-time facilities, yeah. that's going to affect you in the way that it's not going to affect, like, a researcher in the union's national office, you know. Yeah. So there, there is a... However bureaucratised reps may or may not be, and you can debate, you can debate the extent to which that's happened, they're still in the workplace, which is one of the reasons why I think shop stewards organization is is like pretty crucially important yeah yeah Yeah. indeed um i mean something else we might want to discuss and i know um in the kind of uh, preparatory planning for this episode i'm aware in saying that that it might surprise many of our listeners to learn that there is any preparation or planning but in the in the uh the preparation and planning for this episode um uh, holly who who does who, who does a lot of research for the podcast kind of said it was quite important to talk about the question of um, basically the sort of material conditions of the bureaucracy and the effect that this has on shaping their social role. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of boilerplate right-wing attack on trade unions that, you know, every few months there'll be an article in some right-wing tabloid about u- union bosses on 100 grand yeah. or whatever. Um, but... But they actually shouldn't be. On well, it, well, yes, in, indeed, indeed. So um, that's something we might just sort of posit for discussion: the extent to which the material conditions of life of members of the trade union bureaucracy shape their role. Now, you know, one doesn't want to be a, a sort of vulgar determinist about this and, and suggest that merely having a particular. Um, socioeconomic status will entirely condition your consciousness and your role but it is undeniably the case that 
top trade union officials and not just the general secretaries, um, a lot of full-time organisers, a lot of head office staff, um, you know, in, in kind of senior research positions or whatever, have salaries that give them access to a lifestyle um, much closer to that of big bosses yeah. than to the members of the union that they're supposedly representing, which is why it's always been a key demand of pretty much every um, uh, rank-and-file movement, certainly throughout recent history, that there be some relationship between the conditions of life of uh, the, the, the officers, the, 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 the bureaucrats, if you want to call them that, and the members. Um, listeners might remember our, our, our discussion of the uh, Minneapolis Teamster strike. I had to mention it. Got um, it in there. Got it in there. Uh, and when a decision was taken by the Teamsters Union during the course of that struggle to create some full-time positions in their local which were necessary which, which were necessary to, to kind of maintain and consolidate the struggle at the same time they took a decision that the pay of those that firstly those people would be elected which not all trade union officials are and secondly that the the pay of those people would be kind of pegged to the pay that they, they would have earned in their shop yeah. floor jobs and that the other people were earning um, and I think that's a for, for me that that kind of thing is that's the sort of basic building block of a rank and file approach um and that's the sort of thing that uh a an, any any left group or, or or group of activists in trade unions who want to um advance a kind of rank and fileist approach those demands really need to be front and center the election of all officers and officials you know anyone who has any role in the day-to-day -day direction of what the union does at any level needs to be elected yeah. you know I'm, I'm not saying that the, the person who maintains the it systems at, at the head office needs to be elected although you know pr no probably, <laughs> pr probably not probably not but but anyone who's involved in, in well the, they'd be able to rig the online ballot anyway well so. indeed yeah um that anyone who's involved in in the direction of the union at any level needs to be elected and that the elected officials should have their, you know, their, their, their pay and their kind of, you know, benefits should be pegged in some way. Mm. And, and exactly how mm. pegged might vary from union to union, but pegged in some way to the kind of wages and, and, and conditions of the people they represent. But a bit of devil's advocate, I suppose, because I obviously I agree with the election of officials and the, and the sort of um, people not being on, like, wages that are twice as much as what their average member gets and stuff like that. But way more than twice. Well, you know, but you know, talking about not just general secretary, sure, you know. But that doesn't. None of that really solves the problem of that. There is a kind of there are people that have to fulfil this sort of bargaining function and this mediating or negotiating function. And even if those people are on like an average worker's wage and being elected, they're still that like that is a. That is, a, is, is that not sort of an inevitable part of trade unionism, regardless of whether you sort of rein in the bureaucracy and make it materially closer to the membership? There's still that. And, but then I suppose there are things you can do to even open that up, like uh, Solidarność in Poland used I was just, to... I was just about to say. Yeah, yeah. Used, to, used to broadcast all of their negotiations with management via loudhailer into a into yard, yard full yeah. of, of, of the union members, rather than having a sort of chummy behind-the-scenes talk with, with the shipyard owners and then reporting back afterwards sort of thing. So 
I've sort of, sort of answered my own question there, haven't I? In a way. Yeah, very, very, very good. I mean, the, <laughs> the whole podcast could just could just be you. A, a, man, in, a man in conversation with himself <laughs> for an hour and a half. But I, I, I think um, I think that gets to the heart of it, right? That um, yes, it it is an inevitable function of the you know the the, the endeavour of trade unionism under capitalism that there is going to be a you, you sort of need that infrastructure because. The, the the function of trade unionism is to is to to a pretty significant de- degree defined by the parameters of the capitalist system that it exists within. So you're going to have that layer of people who are doing negotiations, of people who are running an office, of people who are performing those sort of small b bureaucratic yeah. functions. But you can put in place cultures and structures and practices and constitutional rules in terms of how they're elected and how much they're paid and all of that, which um, I think you use the phrase reins in or or, or, you, or, or, or kind of hems in or puts, puts um, barriers around how much power that element as a, as a sort of... And how, a, how, a layer, much how, how much power it can wield. Independently from the, from the membership. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, that's why um, that, that, that question of independence is, is really essential because in all these examples we can see... What what's basically going on is the, the the bureaucracy acting as a sort of independent layer on the basis of it you know its its own interests or what it perceives to be the interests of the union as a set of institutions rather than on the basis of the you know the interests of the struggles of the membership. So to counter that, we need independent rank and file organisation, which organises the rank and file. And yes, there is a debate about exactly what the rank and file is. But but the, but the organisers the, the rank of file on an independent basis to 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 challenge and to rein in and to hem in the, the, the power of the bureaucracy, which doesn't really exist in in the British trade union movement no. at the moment. Really, it, it, it doesn't at all. I mean, there there are there are there are small pockets. Um, so we might we might put up some links in the episode description about um, the local associations national action campaign in in the NUT. It's now it's now become something called the Education Solidarity Network in in the NEU. Which was an attempt in that union to kind of break away from the sort of broad, broad leftist model and move towards a more kind of branch-based rank and file model. Um, and certainly, we'll hear in the interview with Rian um, about some embryonic attempts in the UCU to, mm. to, to move towards a more rank and fileist approach. The other thing we haven't talked about in this episode, which you know, is, there's certainly no time to, to to delve into now, but we can sort of throw out as a as a another possible question for discussion is is whether the um proliferation of maybe proliferation's too too big a word but the um the emergence of sort of small non-tuc affiliated unions like the iwgb and the uvw um the iww organizing in pockets as well whether whether their model um uh, represents a kind of alternative to uh, bureaucratized trade unionism and whether th- whether they're unions without a bureaucracy yeah. um, i mean m- my view would be that you know for, for all the very very many wonderful things about those unions and uh, the the um, many gains and victories they've won and continue to win they don't in and of themselves represent a sort of alternative and and nor a um nor a kind of recipe for uh, tr- transforming the, the the kind of mass of of, of bureaucratized unions but you know, again, that's a discussion there about yeah. a, a possible alternative model. Yeah, yeah. I think micro micro unions might be a, 
might be a topic for a future future episode. Yeah, very possibly. I mean, maybe just to conclude then before we um, set up the interview with Rian, we talked in very broad brushstrokes about um, the definition of these concepts, different historical understandings of them. Um, we've not we've not talked it so much in detail about what what uh, a rank and fileist approach might look like in practice. Partially that's because that's sort of what the interview with Rian is for in in this episode. But um, I did just want to suggest a few um, other sort of historical examples of, I think, what we would understand as independent rank and file organisation. And, and I think probably we, we would hold up as, in different ways, kind of being exemplars or models of the kind of approach we're talking about. So Ed mentioned the National Minority Movement, which was a rank and fileist shop stewards movement uh, le led by the... Um, the, the, the what was at the time the very young the Communist Party, um, which pl played played a very important role in in organising um, rank and file uh, work, workplace and union militants across different industries in the nineteen twenties. Yeah, in the in in the nineteen twenties, and 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 unfortunately declined as the Communist Party kind of became Stalinized. Um, I think itself. Well, indeed, <laughs> in yeah. many ways. Um, uh, I think we'd, we'd point listeners towards um, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, uh, f firstly because um, this is Labour Day, so we have to talk about Teamsters. Are also you getting paid by the... T are you a bureaucrat <laughs> for the Teamsters? You? No, I, no I, I mean, I, I, I do it all for free. It's, uh, it's free advertising. So Teamsters for a Democratic Union, TDU, um, was and is, it's, it's still active, a um, rank-and-file movement in the Teamsters Union in America that was about pushing for democratic reform, pushing for greater control over the structures of the union by rank-and-file members, and was contending there not only with um, a sort of conservative bureaucratic layer within the union, but, but also with kind of organised crime and, and the relationship between the union bureaucracy and, and, and organised crime. So a very, a very heroic, um, heroic struggle there. Mm. Um, there, are, there are numerous other examples throughout Labour history, both both recent and more distant. We have to put of, uh, in a, a mention of the Miners' Next Step, which oh, was a, a pamphlet by um, a, a sort of rank and file uh, movement in the South Wales Miners' Federation before the First World War, which the text of which is is easily available online as a kind of one of the blueprints for a sort of how you would overhaul a, the structure of a trade union, make it more in tune with the rank and file. Um, so we'll put up links to that stuff in, in the episode description. And um, as we said at the top of the show, this is a topic which a, is really threaded through everything else we talk about anyway and, and probably one we'll return to on its own again terms. Again and again. Um, but and we, again. And <laughs> but we're going to finish up the episode today um, with an interview with um, Rianne Keyes. Um, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the, the reason we wanted to finish on this is because we feel that um, in a sort of embryonic sense, the experiences Rianne's going to talk about possibly um, give a sense of how a rank and fileist approach within a particular industry, um, within a particular union, might uh, manifest itself in, in the contemporary labour movement. So um, Rianne's a, a, a university worker who was involved in um, strikes by um, university workers to defend their pension arrangements against attempted cutbacks by the employer. And during the course of that dispute, these kind of tensions that we've been talking about re really sort of became quite heightened. In and a very dramatic in, 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 a, in a very In a very dramatic fashion. And um, university workers and activists within the UCU, the, the union 
um, involved in the dispute started to develop kind of a, I think I think it would be fair to say a sort of consciousness and and then embryonic forms of organization that attempted to um, really do some of the stuff we, we, we've talked about and provide that sort of independent rank and file organization against the bureaucracy so here's the interview with Rianne Rian, can you just start by giving us a very brief overview of what last year's dispute was about? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll keep it really brief because I think none of us are none of us pensions nerds. But um, essentially, what the dispute was over was over um, really damaging proposals um, to make changes to the USS pension scheme, which would essentially um, end guaranteed pensions benefits. Um, and there'd been there'd been sort of problems with with the USS in 2011 and again in 2014, um, and so that it had been kind of repeatedly under attack. Um, and and you know this was this was kind of the last straw really. Um, there there had been sort of a previous um, attempt at industrial action over USS in 2014, um, but we we didn't get the sort of strike mandate for it so so by the time sort of 2018 rolled around i think people were particularly furious um, and really wanted to take some action so that's it in a in a sort of very brief um overview kind of way and how did the sort of uh, tension or conflict between the bureaucracy of the union and the rank and file first kind of come into focus during the dispute so I think um, it became particularly notable around a meeting on the thirteenth of March, um, at which the um, at which the deal that had been struck with ACAS on the twelfth of March was being discussed, um, and sort of branch delegates were attending a meeting at UCUH at UCUHQ to kind of discuss that, um, and there was a lot of there was a lot of anger around that deal. I mean, I kind of feel uncomfortable calling it a deal. Um, but there was a, there was a lot of anger really that that deal had even been struck and it was considered to be completely inadequate. So what you saw was sort of UCU rank and file members essentially turning up, demonstrating outside UCUHQ on the thirteenth of March, um, and you know branch delegates were there to kind of say this this deal was unacceptable to the the vast majority of branches, and you know we were told. Um, the, the general secretary addressed the crowd um, outside and said that you know that was probably the best possible deal that we were going to get. So I think at that point it became quite clear that there was this real disconnect between sort of the the bureaucracy in terms of I guess those in, in HQ in Carlo Street and mm. um, and those of us kind of in the branches. So I think that was really the the key point when this sort of blew up and we saw that so they'd negotiated something that basically people weren't happy with and didn't really address people's uh, demands from the strike. Absolutely, absolutely. It was. I mean, some of it was actually um, pretty offensive, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so, for example, there was there was a bit in the deal about rescheduling of classes, um, which is particularly detrimental to those of us who were hourly paid because we lost the we'd lost the pay for that. Um, for that work and obviously if you're hourly paid you can't reschedule stuff um without getting paid for it so so the deal was essentially sort of saying that hourly paid staff should be working for free mm-hmm. essentially um which a lot of us found particularly offensive um 
so yeah there was a there was a lot of anger around the 13th of march deal so a lot of new uh, particularly sort of early career academics sort of uh became involved in the dispute maybe became involved in in a strike for the first time um do you get the feeling that those people sort of went into the dispute with a sense that they were gonna have this tension with their own union or do you think that's something people learned as the dispute went on um so i think i think there were sort of elements of tension that were already um already in place so um particularly for those of us who are younger early career often sort of hourly paid casual on casual contracts um we'd often sort of been promised by hq that um, anti-casualization would be sort of the next big fight for the union um and like historically it's not really been great for action on anti-casualization despite sort of some really stellar efforts from the anti-casualization committee um so in that sense i think there were already some concerns that perhaps the union weren't addressing addressing issues that sort of younger activists um, wanted to be addressed i mean there was also you know certainly a lot of anger over uss and, and the changes to the pension scheme um which as i say has been boiling away since about 2011 um and as i say that we haven't managed to get the 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 percentage needed for action in 2014 and although we did get sort of the percentage need, needed for action short of a strike um essentially the union backed away from that so it was a little bit like in 2018 there was a sense of sort of go big or go home right yeah um, yeah you know we'd kind of backed away from it before um, and i think that also has a lot to do with that lovely um, trade union after 2016 um, where i think you know, because of the thresholds that have been introduced there's kind of a tendency towards sort of bigger and more confrontational actions and um, so i think you know uss itself was was a kind of big deal but i think for a lot of a lot of us younger activists and uh, so many of us were sort of formed in the crucible of the 2010 student movement and, and have been sort of angry about the marketization of higher education and increasing casualization for a, a long time um, and as i say there were there were tensions that developed sort of in struggle and um, particularly around the offensive nature of the 13th of march deal and there was kind of also a lot of anger around sort of say we've been promised that the union's going to take action on anti-casualization but a lot of us kind of felt that if we can't even fight on uss uh, which is something that affects sort of a lot of senior academics um, who actually have access to a pension scheme that a lot of us don't um, even with the large mobilization that we had over uss if we were going to sort of make these derisory deals then essentially what hope do we have for fighting fighting anti-casualization so that was very much sort of i think the feeling among younger activists in the union yeah so there was a kind of um rank and file network that developed out of the dispute can you just say something about the nature of that and how that came about yeah i mean it was brilliant and i think what i think it was also really 
unexpected um, and I think a lot of it has to do with um, what we what we referred to as our digital ticket line because um, the UCU strike was, was sort of all over academic Twitter um, so what you found was sort of a lot of us making making links between branches that sort of historically probably wouldn't have made you know made links together outside of perhaps national meetings like Congress so you find yourself sort of talking to other sort of rank and file activists um and sharing strategy sharing messaging um and it was you know it was really really effective and you found also you know some some branches were able to like call out particularly pernicious practices for from like some employers at other universities and then so you sort of saw that that sort of sharing of information happening in a really really useful way and I think then um, after the strike there was a lot of thinking about um, I guess how we can how we can solidify that and I think that's where a lot of the new sort of more rank and file organizations have come out of but it all sort of started quite organically I think um, through the kind of social media aspect of the USS strike yeah and and presumably as well in uh, in response to to some of the behaviors of the of the elements of the union bureaucracy so that there's a a particular uh event where the bureaucracy seemed to very distinctly act as as and for itself and that was around uh the national congress that happened after the dispute can you just talk talk about that <laughs> Oh my goodness! I mean, where to start? Where to start? <laughs> so there were um, essentially some controversial motions that were brought to um, to UCU Congress um, as a result of, of sort of feeling around the handling of the dispute. Um, so there was there was a particular motion from. Exeter University, which is which is my university, um, which which called for um, essentially the resignation of of Sally Hunt, the general secretary. So it was a um, it, it was a, a vote of no confidence essentially. Mm. Um, there was also a motion brought by King's College London um, to to censure the general secretary for the conduct during the strike so essentially um for the conduct of a branch delegates meeting on the 28th of march um at which the pensions dispute was discussed and where voting cards had been issued but basically no vote of branches no no vote by branch delegates was taken and um, so the the kind of deal that was was put to members and um, a lot of branches were really quite angry about that and there was there was kind of some pretty bad chairing at that meeting and so essentially the decision to put the um pro- the sort of proposal um to members on the 28th of march was really really controversial um so so those were sort of two two key um motions that were that were discussed at congress mm. um, now what we what we found um when we arrived at congress um it was it was pretty pretty well surprising as a first time delegate um first day of congress we were given leaflets by um a 
currently the UCU staff branch of Unite um, basically saying that they they had concerns about certain motions. So there were the two motions that I've already mentioned. So that's um, that's the that's the union representing full time staff of your union. Yes, yeah. that, exactly, exactly. So there was this. Um, so we got these flyers basically saying that if these things are getting discussed, that um, you know that would be that would be problematic, and that they considered sort of our call for the resignation of the general secretary as a threat to sort of the terms and conditions of employment. Um, so that was that was kind of a surprise because obviously um, we'd submitted. The, 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 the motion that we brought had gone through the proper processes. It had gone through a general meeting of our branch. It had, it had been submitted to the Congress Business Committee. It had been put on the agenda two weeks in advance of Congress. It had gone through all of the democratic processes necessary to get it onto the agenda. It was ruled in order. And then on the first day of Congress, we find that there's this kind of, there's this concern from Unite members that sort of said you know this is a threat to um to the terms and conditions of the general secretary's employment um so what we what we sort of found was we we came under a lot of pressure as delegates um from sort of a range of, of sources within the union to sort of withdraw that motion um and then yeah we we arrived at congress to find that the members of the Unite Trade Union, the full-time staff, had elected to stage walkouts if um, our motion and two other motions, so the, the censure motion and another motion referring to democratic processes and governance within the union, mm. if they were on the agenda, then staff would walk out. Um, so that was quite sort of that was quite sort of surprising, um, and essentially, sort of, I see that very much as an attempt. Um, by the by the sort of bureaucracy acting in its own interest to derail the congress which is the sovereign mm. uh, policy making body of the union um, because obviously congress cannot continue without without staff so i found myself in as a first time delegate um, in this really odd situation um, where we're in discussion with with colleagues in unite um, after the first set of walkouts, um, and they sort of said, you know, that they um, they didn't feel that Congress should be able to debate these motions. So we we sort of pointed out that this meant that members of the Unite or full time staff acting in their capacity as members of Unite were able to essentially veto the topics that. Um, assisted trade union could discuss at its annual mm. congress which mm. which seemed really bizarre um and it was it was clear interference we thought in sort of the internal business of a sister union and it also it's, um, the, it's the kind of uh, the, the logic it then would be that no one in the labor movement would ever be able to discuss a no confidence motion in anyone if they were well, receiving I, a, a, a salary from a from a union or or whatever organisation, you know, so it's it's kind of quite, ridiculous, it's isn't it? Absolutely bizarre, and I think all the trade unions do have um, do have sort of things in, that are written into their rules, which sort of say that elected officials can be sort of recalled or, or held accountable. But there's nothing in UCU's rules to say that. Um, so essentially what we were told is that the proper thing to do would be to go through the internal complaints 
process rather than sort of discussing this openly at Congress. Um, and obviously, we, we kind of disputed this interpretation that the General Secretary, yes, she's an employee, but she's also, you know, the most senior elected official in the union. And as such, like, surely the supreme policy making body of the union should be able to ask questions about conduct and, yeah. and, and sort of essentially hold hold elected officials accountable yeah. and it's kind of so, in in the whatever you think about the handling of, of the dispute I, I suppose it kind of betrays like two different views of what a trade union is there i guess because you've got one view that sort of says oh you know this is we're, we're just like any other employer and um you know if anyone's got a complaint against an employee then there's you know processes to go through for that and then there's another view that says well we're not just like any other employer we're a we're an organization that's supposed to be run by the membership and we have a right to debate this this sort of thing openly yeah absolutely um and it just it just seems sort of it seemed very sort of strange to me that there is kind of there is that sort of two ways of looking at the function of a trade union and um, but what was very very clear um in the discussions that we had with sort of the unite colleagues was that they felt that the only satisfactory action would be the withdrawal of the motion so they wouldn't be, even be discussed so you know we offered we offered a few things we offered to allow the motion to be taken in part so allowing a vote on each individual aspect of it but we were told that that was unsatisfactory and we were not prepared to withdraw the motion which as i say had been through all of the appropriate democratic processes to get discussed and had been ruled in order by the congress business committee and had indeed been on the agenda for two weeks prior to congress mm. so it seemed really odd that there was this kind of showdown um we were we, we sort of asked questions about that and we said you know why was the bank not contacted to discuss this if there were these sort of legal concerns around terms and conditions of employment and we were told that um, they didn't know who the delegates were <laughs> which you know we'd all registered and, and if you know if nothing else you could contact the bank secretary you know yeah. the contact details are online yeah. um, so we were told that the reason this hadn't been raised before congress was because they didn't know who the bunch delegates were <laughs> which well is is very interesting um so did so, it get resolved in in one way or another then eventually or um so so what happened um essentially is that um Congress did resume that day, so that was the first day of the three days of Congress. Um, the chair read a statement from the Unite members, um, to which we were given actually no right of reply, um, and they said basically they'd been unable to reach an agreement with us. Um, and there were several votes of of the Congress um, in favour of hearing the debates. You know, there were lots of people who were perhaps opposed to the motion but felt that it should be heard um, and felt that those issues should be debated. And, and Congress voted several times to hear that motion um, in, in increasing numbers each time. Um, and then again, there was a second walkout um, and business was then terminated early on that day. Um, so, and, and at that point, the national officials acting as Unite members declared themselves to be an informal trade dispute with UCU. 
Um, so that was kind of the first day of Congress. Um, the second day was the Higher Education and Further Education Sector Conferences. So that was that there wasn't anything particularly uh, controversial on the um, on on the agendas there. So that went ahead as as planned. Um, and then on the third day, which was sort of the resumption of Congress, again, when our motion was supposed to be discussed, um, there, there was a further walkout, um, and essentially the microphones were turned off, um, and, and Congress could not continue. So um, essentially Congress was, was shut down completely. Um, Very effective because... piece of strike action, though, isn't it, if you want to look at it like that? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was it was it was very very good. Yeah, very good industrial action. It was it was good to see some some militant industrial action. Yeah, the the irony of officials um, taking an unofficial strike, which they never would uh, sanction their own members to to be allowed to do. You know, it's very it's the whole situation is very bizarre, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. But um, yeah, really, really, really interesting. Um, you know, I mean, there was a. It, it was odd. There was sort of an unofficial picket line outside, um, with with sort of members of sort of a particular faction of the union, um, and sort of acting apparently in defence of staff. And there was all sorts of of signs up that sort of said, you know, no to bullying and support our staff. And it was just really odd to be sort of a first time delegate. At, at the UCE National Congress, bringing a properly sort of voted upon motion to to Congress, and, and sort of being being cast in this role, and, and having to be negotiated with a bit like a boss, mm. <laughs> it was it was really really weird. Um, so yeah, that was that was really really fascinating. Um, can you uh, can you say something about the sort of existing UCU left and how it organises and maybe why people in last year's dispute felt like they had to sort of set something else up rather than organise through that? So I think um, there has historically been um, been a sort of issue with having the two main factions in in the universe. In, in the university and college union so you've got ucu left and you've also got the independent broad left which i think has now rebranded itself as the independent progressive left as of this month okay um, but essentially it's kind of two it's two factions um within within the union um and essentially um the they, they they seem to sort of exist because the other one exists, mm. if that makes sense. So it's kind of they, they exist in opposition to each other. But actually, in the in the USS dispute of last year, um, you had, as I say, a lot of a lot of new activists, most of whom, myself included, really don't give a damn about existing factions, um, and just kind of wanted to see. Um, wanted to see sort of a more rank and file approach to to the union's kind of activities so so the existing factions generally focus on union elections and getting sort of people particular particular viewpoints elected so that particular policies can be passed through and um, 
like the NEC, for example, whereas like, a lot of us aren't really, really interested in that sort of old school electoral politics, a lot of which is sort of based on, I guess, sort of legacy fringe left um, rivalries. Mm. You know, we, we kind of think actually the union should be should be grassroots led. It should be member led, um, and I think that was what what became really really clear um, within the USS dispute, and then um, again at Congress um, because initially sort of the um, the UCU left faction actually was opposed to our motion. Um, sort of criticising the general secretary and, and sort of said, you know, this isn't this isn't the way that they wanted they wanted these issues to be addressed. Um, and and then when it gained momentum, what you see is is sort of more people getting on board. Um, mm. And then obviously the sort of left faction um, decided to to support the motion. When so they, sort when of they sort of play, playing catch up in a way. A little bit, yeah. So I feel almost like they've been a little bit outgunned um, mm. by sort of rank and file initiatives, and I feel like um, I feel like we've kind of we've often taken taken the existing factions and, and sort of the bureaucracy defined as like the full time sort of elected officials um, by by surprise, really. Mm. I don't think anyone was quite well. Nobody was really expecting Congress to go the way it went. Shall we say? Mm. Um, so I feel like that's that's really what what happened. It became really clear that there is this kind of momentum behind certain actions which aren't necessarily coming from the the traditional factions. And as I say, most most sort of newer activists don't really don't really buy into the factional organisation and have particular views about you know casualization or around sort of the ways that we should be doing industrial action which perhaps doesn't marry up with the sort of electorally focused factions mm. um, so has has think... the has the rank and file initiative um has it has it kind of solidified as much as you would have liked like whether not necessarily in terms of like formal organization but in terms of like a network of of activists is it is it is it sort of outlasted the dispute in that sense? Um, well, it's still very much going. Um, so you've got you've got a few um, you've got a few sort of key elements of the rank and file movement. Although there's a lot of, sort of overlap between them. Um, so you saw um, the emergence of like the branch solidarity network, um, and also sort of UCU rank and file, which were very sort of rank and fileist. Um, sort of focused uh, loose not not exactly not like formal organizations but sort of like loose groupings of people um, and certainly you know branches are still communicating through those mechanisms still sort of organizing still sharing branch motions still sharing ideas and discussing things so in that sense it's outlasted outlasted the dispute um, and those networks that we built up in in sort of the in the sort of struggle of the USS dispute are very much um, very much still in place. And what's really exciting, actually, um, is we've got um, the NEC 
the elections are currently ongoing, so the ballot papers will have gone out, I think, last week. Um, and we've actually got a three-way contest for the vice president, the vice president higher education, um, which I think is actually pretty unprecedented. Mm. Um, I'm not sure there's been a three-way um, three-way contest before. I think in these elections, you tend to sort of see one candidate from each faction. Yeah. Whereas in in this election for vice president, we've got a rank and file candidate as well. So that's really really exciting. Um, so Vicky Blake is um, is sort of the non-aligned third candidate, and I think it'll be really interesting to see see sort of how that how that goes. Yeah, and in- interesting as well to to be fighting uh, a union election, but from a but from a different sort of point of view from the traditional left, if you if you see what I mean. Absolutely, and I think it's been um, you know it's been it's been kind of I think surprising for a lot of people, but um, you know hopefully I, I think Vicky, what what Vicky's kind of. Um, what what Vicky's candidacy is really showing is that there is this kind of appetite for for something outside of the old politics of GCE and, and hopefully that'll be that'll be successful to kind of to kind of show that actually we can organise outside of um sort of the traditional battle lines, if you like. Yeah, yeah. It's it sounds like uh, it sounds like interesting ongoing developments in the UCU. Well, thanks for talking to us, Rian, and uh, good luck with it all. Thank you very much, Ed. So we heard there from uh, Rian Keyes, who's a rank-and-file activist in the UCU. Um, That's about all that we've got time for. Um, Just to mention, at the moment in the PCS union, there is a a contested election for Assistant General Secretary in which some of these uh, arguments that we've been uh, discussing today are are uh, playing themselves out a little bit. Uh, There's a a candidate from uh, the independent left, John Maloney, who's running for Assistant General Secretary, um, of, you know, what is regarded as a left-led union, and the other candidates for that position are full-time officials in the union. So uh, some of those uh, arguments are playing themselves out, and we'll put a link to John's campaign in the uh, episode description. Yeah, it's a a key uh, sort of platform of his campaign that he's only going to take the average wage of a, of, of a worker from uh, the biggest section of the union and um, all, all of these discussions about um, whether full-time officials should be elected and what the kind of relationship should be between between the rank and file and the officialdom very much front and centre in that election so as Ed says we'll put a link up and people can read some more about it. Um, thanks to everyone for listening once again our best wishes for a very speedy recovery to our absent co-host Ellie Clark and we do hope you'll join us next time for more discussion of trade union issues and labour history. Labour Days was presented by Ed Mustill and Daniel Randall and produced by Liam McNulty with research from Holly Smith. Follow Labour Day. <laughs> Follow Labour Days on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Labour underscore. Start again. I always fuck up the socials. <laughs> Follow us on Facebook at Labour Days Podcast or find us on Twitter at Labour underscore Days. Download. You've got a bit further. You can start. You can start with downloads. <laughs> Download us from your podcast app of two of. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it in my head. Oh, I can't do it.
Download it. Oh, forget it. <laughs>